All right, let's open up in prayer. Yikes. And talk quickly. Dear Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity to be here, and I just pray that you be glorified. Help us to get through it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've only got three quarters of a Sunday school session to do now, so I'm going to have to move quickly. But we finished the Renaissance. Technically, we're still in the Renaissance. Renaissance goes, depending on who you ask, it goes for another chunk of time. But there's an important part of the Renaissance that we're in that deserves to have its own its own name. So we're in the Reformation. So today we're going to yeah! So today we're going to be talking about Martin Luther. Is he, is he your personal hero? Is it? Okay. No. Okay. Martin right. Luther, it, college doesn't start until the day after Martin Luther, so whatever that is. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Not Martin Luther King Jr. Day. This is the guy he's, he's named for. Um, but so, we, as, we, as we ended up last week, things are getting worse at the end of the turn of the century. We get this Medici Pope come in, right? Because the Medici wanted their own Pope, Medici being one of the crime families that we've been talking about. And so Leo actually uh, bankrupted the Roman Catholic Church, living the way he liked to live, you know, having big lavish parties, having the, the circus that he carried with him throughout all of Rome with this big giant white elephant that he liked to ride, that kind of stuff. Not a, not a great human being, Leo. Didn't even necessarily believe in Christianity. So he started selling off everything that he could. He was selling off... Uh, Statues of the Apostles, he was selling off Cardinal's hats, he was selling off uh, furniture, silverware, anything that he could sell off to make money so that he could afford his parties and his nifty white elephant. Yeah, yeah. This is Yeah, this is this is this is the way this works. Because he said, God has given us the papacy, let us enjoy it. So he also sold indulgences. So he would have priests go around and, and sell indulgences. Which, if you remember, kind of started with the Crusades, where they're like, you will get forgiven in advance, uh, at least temporarily, for any of the stuff that you do while on Crusade, and this is how we're going to afford the Crusade. Pope Leo took this to say, if you give us enough money, you can do anything you want. Let's not even pretend that we're saying stuff that you're doing while on Crusade. It's just anything you want to do, give me money, everything's cool. In fact, his grand commissioner, a guy named Johann Tetzel, coined the phrase, as soon as the coin of the copper rings, a soul from purgatory springs. If you drop it in the nifty little box, you get forgiven. Shave time off of purgatory. Okay, so obviously we've had some priests who are saying, I just, I just don't think that's right. I just don't think that's right. Which is where we're going to get into reform. 1517, Martin Luther protests by writing 95 theses. There's our man Martin when he used young. Anyway, pardon me? The 50, well, yeah, kind of, we'll get to that. Luther was born in 1483, middle-class family in Saxony, so he's a good German guy here, right? Martin Luther. Anyway, his dad wanted him to be a lawyer, went and had him trained for law, learned Latin, philosophy, argumentation. He's going to be this litigator, right? That's going to work out great. He read Aristotle, he read all these different philosophers about how to, how to engage, how to build an argument, how to do all this kind of stuff. Learned a lot about how to make an argument, but nothing about how to be a good Christian. And it bothered him. Because he wanted to be a good Christian. And he's like, I, but I'm not learning any. The more, in fact, the more I learn about these philosophers, the more I learn that reason only gets you so far. I want to understand 
how to have some sort of relationship to God. Now, at one point, while he was going back to school, he was riding on a horse and almost got struck by lightning. Scared him spitless. He was, at, and he realized, I have no idea what will happen if I get killed. I am absolutely terrified where I'm at with God. I mean, and you probably have heard, 23. So, you probably have heard of people in even modern times that have had kind of a, a near-death experience and went, uh, I'm kind of scared straight. I don't know what will happen to me. You know, that's the classic thing that they tell you, don't ever do this, by the way. But, yeah, rarely do this, by the way. When you're talking to somebody, don't sit there and say, if you were to die tonight, where would you end up? Because that's kind of like fear-mongering in terms of, of how you're, you're sharing the gospel. But it worked for Martin. It's like, where would I be? So, since he was riding on horseback, he promised St. Anna, the patron saint of people riding on horseback. Yeah, she's the patron saint of people riding on horseback, and he was riding on horseback. So he prayed to St. Anna, and he said, I'm going to become a monk and serve God if only God will let me into his heaven. Because I'm, I'm scared that he wouldn't. So is that the right reason to give your life to the Lord? If, if, if I do X, Y, and Z to God, he then has to let me into heaven. That's the way this works, right? So he became an Augustinian friar because, again, he'd studied Augustus. He'd studied uh, Augustine. He'd studied these different uh, philosophers and things. And he's like, I'm going to go into the philosophical monkness. I'm going to be this Augustinian monk, and I'm going to be unhappy for Jesus. And he was. He was absolutely just horrified and unhappy. His dad was livid with him, said, I'm never going to forgive you. You've thrown away everything I've given you. You were going to be a lawyer. You trained to be a lawyer. And you're going to throw all that away. Apparently that was pointless. If you're going to serve God, then why would he let you waste all that education? As many fathers have done. So Luther then said, you know what? When I became a monk, I lost touch with Christ, the Savior and Comforter, made him the jailer and hangman of my poor soul. Because I'm doing this so that God will have to save me. It's all about works. It's all about what I'm doing. It's all about forcing myself to do this. I hated every second of it. That's how you become a Christian, right? Hate every second of it, but that's what you have to do because then you know that you've earned it. Then you know you've earned your salvation. Did they, so did they commonly feel like the only way you were a Christian you were going to go to heaven is if you were a monk? So all the common people didn't have much of a chance? The only way you're going to get into heaven is if your good works outweigh all of your cruddy things. And so the more you did good stuff, um, the, the shorter your time in purgatory. You shave off years in purgatory. Um, in fact, even today, uh, people will talk about, uh, a lot of Catholic families will say, you know, we, we will have less, pardon me, less time in purgatory because my, my nephew's a priest. That counts toward me spending less time in purgatory because he's a holy guy, so it will be for us. Um, so this this is very much a, a strong Catholic teaching, even even in modern circles. Even though it's not officially part of Catholic circles, but anything that you do to make yourself holified, vicariously through your children or nephew or whatever, helps you and shaves time off. So it's this constant sense of I've got to do this the right stuff. Actually, we're we're kind of talking about that in, the, in Galatians, aren't we? As we're going through. So he excelled in his studies, even though he hated it. And he was eventually called to the faculty of the University of Wittenberg in, in Germany. And he became the resident doctor of Bible, or doctor in Bible, teaching theology. So he's 
He's the Bible guy. It's Dr. Bible Man. So this is this is Luther. 1516, Johann Tetzel comes to Germany. How do you think these two are going to react well with one another? He comes and says, aha! Once a, a coin in the coffer rings, the bankrupt church needs to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica, so we need your money. Well, and there's elephant feed, you know, that we need the money for. And Luther's like, this is wrong, because now I've actually read the Bible as a monk. I'm actually reading this thing. I, I always wanted to have a relationship with God, and the more I read the Bible, the more I'm teaching the Bible, I don't think this is what the Bible is actually saying. This is unbiblical. It says, since the Pope's income today is larger than that of the wealthiest of wealthy men, why does he not build this Basilica of St. Peter with his own money, rather than with the money of impoverished believers? He's a Medici. He's got more money than Crassus. Why would he ask us to pay for this? It doesn't make any sense. Right? Oh, he does. I didn't say Leo is bankrupt. The church is bankrupt. Leo has massive amounts of savings. Because he doesn't spend any of that on Hanno the White Elephant. Or on his panthers, or on his jugglers, or on his pretty little boys that he has, and his orgies at the church. No. He doesn't pay his, his own money. That's all church funds. Right? Now, like I said, this is only one of 95 theses that, that Luther writes in a letter to his bishop, Albrecht of Mainz. He's like, Albrecht, something's gone very wrong here. And I, I think we need to reconsider this. So let me write you a letter with 95 points to it as to what's been going wrong here. You're Albrecht. What do you do with this? Oh, there you go. Yeah, I'm sure there. I'm sure there are a lot of people have done that, like many teachers. Yeah. What were you gonna say? Take Luther to task. Okay. Well, let's look at these 95, and then we'll come back to that. According to tradition, right? He nails the 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg on October 31, which we talked about the other the other week. October 31st nails the because he knew that why why on October 31st. Well, that's why it's All Hallows' Eve, right? All Hallows' Eve is before All Hallows' Day, just like Christmas Eve is before Christmas Day. All Hallows' All Saints' Day, November 1st. So if you want to make sure everybody sees it, you nail it the day before, right? For All Hallows' Eve. Everybody's going to go into church that evening, and they're certainly going to be there the next day. So, you nail it. Now, this might seem weird, but this is kind of what, what Kitty was getting at. It might seem like, oh, he's being very aggressive. He's nailing it so that everybody sees it. There's lots of stuff nailed up here, you see. This is kind of the bulletin board for the faculty and students in this college town. If you want somebody to read something, you pop it up there. It's a 16th century Facebook, right? If this is what this is for, you do this. Now, the interesting thing is we don't know if he actually ever did this. I have no idea if he actually ever nailed anything up there on October 31st of 1517. The only thing we know about this is that it comes from a tradition based on an offhand comment based on somebody else who wasn't there at the time commenting years later. So did he do this or not? I don't know, but it makes a great visual. And he might have. It, it might have been exactly what happened. We just we just don't know. Everybody just, oh, it automatically happened. You know, maybe. Still, there's enough to it that I'm like, yeah, it makes a certain amount of sense. It certainly flies with what we know about Luther. So I'm fine with saying, yeah, probably. If you can live with probably, that's fine. Live with probably. Anyway, 
we do know that he made use of a completely different social media. Anybody else want to toss out what he did did use? Whether or not he used this bulletin board, I don't know. But there's a new social media technology that he, he does make use of. Printing press. Printing press. He originally just intended his theses to be this intellectual critique. I'm a, I'm a professor. I teach Bible. And this Yahoo is in town teaching stuff that is completely against Bible. I've got to say something. I have to make some sort of statement here. But that's probably not all that I'm going to do. Just, just an intellectual comment. I'm going to share it with my bishop. But when his friends got a hold of this, they took it to the local printer, and they printed up his 95 theses and disseminated it. Within two months, within two months, it was all the way across Europe. Within two weeks, everybody in, in Germany was reading it. Within two months, everybody in Europe is reading this. These are really good theses. They make some really good, serious points. And that's not what Luther was intending. But I don't think he minded. I just think that's not what he was originally intending. Now, remember, he's trained as a lawyer, right? He's trained for years as a lawyer. He studied Aristotle. He studied rhetoric, which is the, uh, the study of how to do persuasion in any kind of circumstances. How do you make use of any opportunity that you can to make the case that you're trying to make? And so he's like, okay, I've now been trained as a lawyer and trained as a theologian. I've read the Bible. And like Paul, I know how to put it together into a cogent argument. And so that's what I'm going to do. And, and I'm going to start with this whole problem with indulgences. But I'm going to build on that to other issues as well. For instance, he said, if when Jesus Christ said repent, when he told us to repent, if he actually called for the entire life of the believers to be one of repentance, and wouldn't you agree then? He's not just talking about some kind of moment where you feel bad and say, I don't want to do that anymore, and then you go off and do whatever you want. If we agree that Jesus actually meant, I want your whole life to be changed, would you agree? Okay. Then why would specific acts of penance be necessary? If your whole life was supposed to be repentant, why do you need to prove that you're repentant with specific acts of penance? What's a, what is penance? Anybody understand what that word means? Yeah, uh, when you go into the priest and say, forgive me, Father, I sin, he says, well, there's so I will forgive you if you do X or Y. So many Hail Marys. If you crawl on your knees for the next two days. If you go through the rosary five times. If you give $47 to the poor box. Whatever. If you do X, then you will be forgiven. He's like, if your whole life is supposed to be penitent, why would specific additional acts of penance be required? That does kind of logically not work. He's like, wouldn't they simply be what you were supposed to be doing in the first place? I mean, it's like, you should stop. I will only forgive you if you cease beating your wife. You know, well, you should probably have not been beating your wife in the first place. Call me wacky. Well, you should give money to the poor. Well, you probably should be giving money to the poor in the first place. So you're either talking about things you're supposed to be doing, or you're talking about things over and above what you're supposed to be doing. Jesus said, I want you to do X and Y, and you go, and I'll do Z. Are you suggesting that... X and Y weren't enough, that what Jesus was telling you is not enough. So which is it? Is it stuff you're already supposed to be doing, or stuff you don't need to be doing? Because either way, it's kind of pointless. And either way, it actually undermines what Jesus did on the cross, because you're saying it wasn't enough, or you're saying it was enough, but I'm doing more stuff anyway. And it also undermines the sincerely heartfelt repentance, that contrition that you're supposed to be feeling every day. 
you're supposed to be living for Christ every day. If you're not, you should fix that. Whether you've sinned greatly and a priest told you to fix it or not, you should, every day you should wake up and take up your cross every day. Isn't that what Jesus said? That's a pretty logical argument, isn't it? Here's another example. He said, if God never remits guilt to anyone without at the same time making him humbly submissive to the priest, which is what the church was saying, you will never be forgiven unless the priest tells you you're forgiven. You can't just pray for you can't just pray for forgiveness. David, you certainly couldn't teach your children to pray. Remember, we, the people have been excommunicated for doing that. You cannot pray without a priest. You cannot request forgiveness without a priest. It doesn't work without a priest because it's not about what's going on in your heart. It's about the right authorities doing the right liturgies at the right times. It's all about what you do on the outside. So, if you guys are right, and God never forgives without a priest being present, then the penitential rules of forgiveness only apply to men who are still alive, who have priests standing next to them. And none of it applies to the dead, who don't have a priest standing next to them, right? There's no priest wandering around in purgatory helping people out. So, by definition, it, it, penance only applies to living people because they have priests around them. Which means it makes no sense that penalties were changed and made to apply to those in purgatory. So the payments for any indulgences now could somehow affect those who are already dead. Right? Because death puts an end to all the claims of the church on the deceased. It's not like if, if Kitty, you put money in the poor box, it's going to shave any time of you or Randy off of purgatory. Because apparently you have to have a priest standing next to you for that to work, right? I'm just using the Catholic arguments against Catholicism. He said, then you go, wow, I would not like to go to court against this guy. So he says, there is no divine authority for preaching that the soul flies out of the purgatory immediately, uh, that for the preaching that the soul flies out of purgatory immediately, I must have written that badly, uh, when the money clinks at the bottom of the chest, like... Johann Tetzel had often claimed. That doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. Besides, he says, the Pope himself can't remit guilt. What? The Pope can't remit guilt. He can only declare and confirm that it has been remitted by God. No priest, not even a Pope, can say you are forgiven. Like, he's the one forgiving you. All he can do as the vicar of Christ is to say, God has forgiven you. Right? He can't make that decision. Due to the genuine contrition of the uh, uh, contrition of the, uh, the penitent believer, God forgives you because of your contrite heart. Thus, any kind of papal indulgences should only be preached with caution, lest people gain a wrong understanding and think that they are preferable to other good works, those of love. You should be doing good works, i.e., loving one another. You should be doing positive things. That's what matters. For instance. Should, Christians should be taught that he who sees a needy person but passes it by, though he gives money for indulgences. Oh, I'm giving lots of money so that I can be forgiven, but I'm giving no money to this person who's starving. That person gains no benefit from the Pope's pardon, but only incurs the wrath of God. Right? And any good Pope would agree with this. Technically, what God is looking for is acts of love, not acts of indulgence pain. Because it's not like the Pope can forgive you anyway. It's all God anyway. For that matter, if it really were up to the Pope, if the Pope really could do it, 
Why does the Pope liberate everybody from purgatory? Why didn't he just say, y'all free, go to heaven? If it's up to the Pope, why doesn't he do that? I mean, that would be the morally best of reasons. I mean, he redeems innumerable souls for money, a most perishable thing, with which to build St. Peter's Church, a very minor purpose. Why not save everybody? And, and why not do this not just once, but a hundred times a day? Just get everybody out of there. If it's up to the Pope, he's a bit of a he's a bit of a jerk leaving so many people in purgatory until they give him money. Albrecht says, I ain't touching this with a ten foot pole. I am sending this on to Rome because I think this is heresy. And I'm not talking to, 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 to Martin Luther for nothing. Okay, so fifteen eighteen. Luther appears at the Diet of Augsburg. An a diet is this formal assembly of the church. It comes from a Greek word that means a way of life or a daily regimen, which is why a diet can either mean a formal assembly where you decide what to do, or it can mean the set of foods that you eat as a part of a healthy daily regimen. So it actually does come mean the same thing either way, but when you see diet, think formal assembly. Anyway, at Augsburg, a guy named uh, Cardinal Tommaso de Vio grilled Luther about his theses and his heretical teachings. And he's like, I'm going to nail you down and we're going to figure out once and for all what you actually believe. Now, what's interesting is everybody thinks they won the Diet of Augsburg. Just exactly who won this depends on whether you're a Protestant or a Catholic. Because the Catholics sat there and said, ah, the Cardinal pressed him to admit that he didn't recognize that the Pope had any ultimate spiritual authority specifically given to him by Scripture. Luke, right? right. <laughs> There's nothing in Scripture that says the, the Bishop of Rome gets to rule the church. It doesn't work like that. And so the Catholics go, ah, aha! We, we show that he's a heretic. We nailed it. We win. He's a crazy man. And the Protestants say, boy, we win. Because it made Luther say, I think you're all crazy. This, this brought it all out. So who won? Depends on whose history you read. Pardon me? No, they tried, but he snuck out. He, they, like, they tried to arrest him, and he's like, I'm totally leaving now, before that they could. But all this gets to the point where it comes to, back to Luther. He's the dumbest guy for them to do this to. Leo was under fire because everybody's like, you're spending the church money on white elephants, for crying out loud, you know? Maybe you're a bad person, and Leo says, I need to find a whipping boy. I need to find somebody that we can publicly show the Pope's power using. I'm going to pound on him, and, and that way I'm going to look good. Everybody's going to agree that I'm in charge. I know. Let's pick this Luther guy. Such a bad idea. Such a bad plan. Or a good plan, depending on, again, which side of history you're standing on. They've got Luther, since he's popular... This is going to be a great guy. He's, we're going to pound on him publicly, and he's just going to roll over. Not the right guy. Every time they pushed him on something, he just pushed right back, and he grew farther away from Catholic dogma. They said, the Pope's the ultimate authority. He said, you know, actually, I don't think the Bible does give the Pope ultimate authority. They said, ah, why do we need purgatory at all then? I mean, if, if, if this is the case, if, if, if you can't shave time off of purgatory with your good works, what's the point of purgatory? And he says, you know, you're right. It's pointless! There is no purgatory! The 
there's nothing in Scripture to say that there was. It just was a theology that made you feel good. They said, okay, wait a minute. Then why do we even need penance? What's the point of penance? If it's not required for salvation or the reduction of time in purgatory, if there is no purgatory, what's the point of penance? And he goes, you're right! They're just pointless. It goes against the clear teaching of Scripture. If salvation is by faith alone, you don't need to be telling people that they need penance on top of that. Should people be penitent? Should people repent from when they do wrong? Absolutely. But penance is pointless. It doesn't bring you any closer to God in and of itself. They also weren't they weren't expecting him to be quite as forceful as he was in his responses. He was a really good arguer, and he was also a really energetic arguer. In fact, uh, Sarah uh, turned me on to a website that you can r randomly access actual Luther insults. So I just pulled, I just pulled the first three that came up. Uh, you run against God with the horns of your pride up in the air and thus plunge into the abyss of hell. Woe to you, Antichrist. That's, uh, that's in one of his works. Uh, it's, uh, it's in defense and explanation of all the articles. He's, just, he's writing to anybody reading this who disagrees with him. Uh, I guess another guy says, you know, you shouldn't write a book before you've heard an old sow fart. And then you should open up your jaws with awe saying, thank you, lovely nightingale. That is just the text for me. Because that's what I think of when I read your book. You people are more stupid than a block of wood. That's Luther. Really good, really good arguments wrapped in your absolute idiot terminology. Luther's a trip. Anyway, so Cardinal DeVios calls for his immediate arrest. He's like, we totally have to arrest this guy. A theologian named Johann Eck called him the new Jan Hus. He's like, you're as bad as Hus. In fact, you're even worse because you're more energetic than Hus. Pope Leo wrote a response to the 95 Thesis called Arise, Lord. And he says, I'm going to, I'm going to prove that he's wrong. And he argued that... Yes. Whether he actually wrote this or not, I mean, it might have even been his cardinals that wrote it. But he's like, it's the contrition itself that's the heretical part. That Luther keeps focusing on contrition as if that's going to make all the difference. What is contrition? Yeah, feeling sorry, feeling repentant, feeling like you've done wrong. Since no one is completely genuinely contrite, the, uh, the, the papal bull argues, contrition makes one a hypocrite, indeed more of a sinner, because you're never completely contrite. You're only pretending to be. Besides, it's impossible that you know every sin that you've done, so if you forget to be contrite about even one, you're still a lawbreaker, right? So you're still lost in your sinfulness. And even if you could confess all of your sins, you're stealing God's grace from him. Since as long as we wish to confess all sins without exception, we're doing nothing else than to wish to leave nothing to God's mercy to pardon. Because if you confess and feel bad about each of your sins, then you're saying, you have earned the right to be forgiven on all of those because you did what you needed to do. You, you did those acts of contrition, still lost in doing stuff, right? He's like, and thus you leave nothing for God to be gracious about because you've done all the work. So forgiveness requires a priestly meditation before God, not penitence of heart. In fact, if you've obtained the absolution of the priest and firmly believe yourself to have been absolved, you will truly be absolved, whatever there may be of this contrition thing. In fact, 
if he who confessed was not contrite, if the priest didn't absolve seriously, if it was all just a big joke, if nonetheless the guy believes that he's been absolved, he's truly absolved. You, no, you do need the priest. The priest is the whole point. You still need the priest to be serious about it. You need the right person to say the right words. Nobody involved in that process has to have the right heart. You just need the right person to say the right words. In fact, no one should answer a priest that he's contrite, nor should a priest inquire, since the question is pointless. It's even blasphemous. Who cares what's going on in your heart? Did the right person say the right words? That's Christianity. Do you see why Erasmus was getting disgusted? Given what we said last week about Erasmus, he was sat there and said, it should be what's really going on in your heart, not just about the hoops you jump through. In fact, he used the Eucharist as an example, saying that it's those who prostrate their hearts in contrition before God who thus eat and drink judgment on themselves, according to Paul. It's, it's you saying that you're contrite. It's you saying you want to be right before God. Christians should not come to the table to express contrition, but in anticipation that they will attain this sacramental grace. You don't take communion because you're trying to penitently remember all that Jesus did to make you clean from sin. No, you come because if you take communion, God gives you special magic grace. You come to get stuff. Right? Which is why the scariest thing at this time to a Catholic would be told that they cannot take communion. Arguably. To be excommunicated, to be told that you cannot take communion, means you can't stay a Christian. You can't keep God's presence in your life. In fact, I just saw a Catholic TV show the other day where a guy was talking about uh, that, that Christ came into this world and dwelt among us through the sacraments. That's what God means when he says that God dwells within us. We take him into us when we take the sacraments, when we take communion. How else can Christ dwell in us unless we physically devour him? That was a week ago that I just watched that. So, in the same vein, he says, it's a pernicious poison that teaches that purgatory cannot be proved from sacred scripture, which is the canon. Of course it can. How so? Of course it can. How can it be proved? Of course it can. So in response, Luther wrote, whoever wrote this bull, he's the Antichrist. I protest before God, our Lord Jesus, his sacred angels, and the whole world, that with my whole heart I dissent from the damnation of this bull, this papal bull, that I curse and execrate as sacrilege and blasphemy of Christ, God's Son and our Lord. This be my recantation, O bull, thou daughter of bulls. Which is a nice little pun. You're a papal bull, but I'm going to call you like the daughter of these, you know, bull-sacrificing pagans and king. And, you know, it's, it's kind of cute. Yeah. Uh, no, but... Later, and this is my favorite, he says, I was wrong, I admit it. When I said that indulgences were the pious defrauding of the faithful, I recant and say indulgences are the most pious frauds and imposters are the most rascally pontiffs, popes, by which they deceive the souls and destroy the goods of the faithful. I, I recant because I just didn't go far enough. Again. I said you're ugly. Yeah, I said you're the ugliest thing that's ever walked the earth. If I just said you're ugly, I apologize. <laughs> okay, so, so Leo excommunicated Luther 
as you might imagine. And he said, you're the slave of a depraved mind. He's an infectious animal that needs to be kept from the rest of the herd. Dangerous guy. But even then, his popularity continued to grow. He just kept getting more and more famous. People kept going, you know, the guy makes sense. Because he makes sense. And he's colorful. He makes sense. And he does it in a way that everybody goes, <laughs> stick it to him. So, he was asked to appear at the Diet of Worms. Get over it. It's an unfortunately named. It just means there's a church assembly at the city of Worms in Germany, so in Saxony, actually. So, deal. Anyway, he's already dodging an arrest warrant, right? And since he'd already been excommunicated, Luther only appeared after he'd been promised safe conduct by Prince Friedrich of Saxony. Friedrich says, I, I promise I will get you there and away from there safely. Just go and answer the charges. On my sacred honor, I promise you. And, and Friedrich was called Friedrich the Wise. He's a decent guy. So, so Luther's like, okay, all right, I'll do it. Let me look at history. <laughs> but Friedrich's a good guy. What's your problem? He can't say conduct. Oh yeah, there's been a couple of times. No, nobody shoots at you if you have the white flag, or, or if you're a medic, in the, like in yeah. Vietnam and Korea, nobody shot at the medics, right? Because they saw the Red Cross, and they're like, don't shoot at the medic, what are you, nuts? He's a medic, right? Anyway, so Johan Eck, that we've already heard about, was giddy. He's like, I will totally fry this guy. I am fine with being a prosecutor. In fact, he laid Luther's writings before the assembly and said, uh, are these yours? Do you stand by this? And Luther took a day to pray and to talk with his friends and consider before he answered. And anybody remember what he said? Famous phrase that he said. There you go. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I don't trust either in the Pope or the councils alone, since it's well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. But I love this. This is a great rhetorical response. He's like, I, I leave it open that you might be able to convince me from scripture that I'm wrong. But until you do, you're asking me to go against my conscience, and I can't do that. <coughs> I actually cheated and paraphrased this when answering several of the questions when I was going through licensure. I'm like, I can't go against conscience. If scripture says this, I have to believe this. If you can tell me from scripture why I'm wrong, I'm happy to change. But I, I can't go against what I understand scripture to say. Stop short saying, here I stand, I can do no other. That, yeah. that would have been tacky. That <laughs> reminded Luther that all heretics quote scripture. They're always quoting scripture. Good Jehovah's Witness, a good Mormon will quote scripture. So you can't trust scripture. Not by itself. Scripture's good. Scripture's good. But you can't trust it. It can be misused, can't it? Would you agree that you can't just trust scripture? If somebody says, here's what this verse is, somebody somebody quotes scripture. You can't just trust that, right? You can't trust their interpretation. Scripture clearly says there is no God. I can quote multiple verses that say there is no God. It's not even my interpretation. Yeah, it is completely out of context. That's right. Scripture is itself a tool. It's just a completely perfect tool. But even a completely perfect tool, somebody can beat you over the head with it. They can do bad things with it. So he says, no, no, no. 
Scripture's truths have to be interpreted through the filters of tradition and proper church authority. You are dodging all of that with what you're saying. It's in this context that I coined the term Lutheran or Lutheranism to talk about his doctrine, saying you're creating your own personal religion, Luther. Luther never liked the term Lutheranism or Lutheran or Lutheranism himself. He liked evangelical. That's, that's the, what he wanted. He's like, we're just sharing the good news, the gospel of, of freedom in Christ. That's what we're trying to share. But Peck is the one that said Lutheran church, this Lutheranism. So the Spanish Holy Roman Emperor Carlos I uh, called for Luther's immediate arrest and execution. What were you saying earlier? Uh, yeah, you shouldn't, uh, shouldn't trust, yeah. Yeah, say conduct, man, say conduct! No, arrest him, execute him. Which is why the German Prince Friedrich, who promised him safe conduct, actually kidnapped him. Kidnapped Luther and took him away to a castle deep in Saxony, going, I made my promise. I gave you my word. I don't care if the Holy Roman Emperor is going to go back on that. I'm not. If I have to go to war against the Holy Roman Emperor, I'll do so. If he wants to march troops into Saxony to my castle to get you, that's what he's going to have to do. Which is really cool when you realize that Friedrich was a happy Catholic. He had bought indulgences. He had tons of relics. He had enough relics to get himself almost two million years off of purgatory. Seriously, this guy had gotten, in fact, he had, I think, a finger of St. Anna. Patron saint of people who ride on horses, right? This guy was Joe Catholic. He did not agree with Luther at all. But he gave his word. I like Friedrich. Comes off looking pretty good, actually. In response, Carlos declared it a crime to give Luther food or shelter. Anyone was legally allowed to kill him if they found him. No legal repercussions. Anybody can kill Luther. And anybody who harbors him is a criminal. But this isn't the Pope. He's not a priest or anything. He's just a king. He's an emperor. somebody else in some other country, Carlos? Well, he's a Holy Roman Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, of which Saxony is a part at the moment. But Friedrich basically says, I, I don't care. I don't care what you say. March your troops into Saxony. But it's illegal! Enforce that. Do you really want to march your Spanish troops into German territory? Or do you want to make your German troops fight against Germans in German territory? What exactly is your plan here, Carlos? If I don't go along with this, what exactly are you planning to do? To which the answer to that is, make more laws? You go, yeah, because there's really not anything you're going to do to enforce this. Which is why Luther stayed at Weimar Castle for a year, writing tons of books. Tons of books. And translating the New Testament into German. So he used that time well. And his, his influence continued to grow, even though he's locked up in a castle. His influence continued to grow. Not only did he win over Friedrich, because, like I said here, spending a year and locked up with Luther is going to do that to you. But it also, the rest of the faculty at Wittenberg took up the banner and said, okay, you're locked up, we're not, so we're going to go tell people. In fact, one of the professors, a guy named Philip Melanchthon, became uh, a leader in his own right. He's like, I'm going to document all this stuff too. I'm going to go preach all this stuff as well. Now, it's interesting. It's a little bit of a dark side to some of this. Expressing the doctrine of salvation by faith that it's not about your works, it's not about what you do, you're saved no matter what. It's not about jumping through all these hoops. Luther wrote to Mollington saying, be a sinner, let your sins be strong. It doesn't matter what you do, 
But let your trust be in, in Christ be stronger. And rejoice in Christ, who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. I mean, we're going to commit sins while we're here, but this life is not a place where justice resides. You're going to sin. It's not that big a deal. Because Jesus is the victor over sin. Technically, I agree with what he's saying, other than that first bit. I agree that people will still screw up and Christ is still stronger. But this beginning bit really bothers me. And how this plays out really bothers me. That he would sit there and go, oh, be a sinner. Don't don't fret the sin, because Jesus has already forgiven you the sin. I'm like, well, may it never be. May it never be, exactly. This is one of the things that brought him into, into conflict with Erasmus. Because Erasmus is like, you, you, you seem to be seem to be missing it. If you remember last week we talked about Erasmus and he said, I, you say that you don't like any of this Catholic-y stuff. All these priests and all these confessionals. But look around at this evangelical generation that you've created. And observe whether amongst them less indulgence is given to luxury, lust, or avarice than among those whom you so detest. Show me any one person who by that gospel has been reclaimed from drunkenness to sobriety, from fury and passion to meekness, from avarice to liberality, from reviling to well-speaking, from wantonness to modesty. I show you a great many have become worse through following it. Your gospel of grace, of God will forgive you, you don't earn your salvation, all it seems to be doing is making a generation of people go, it don't matter what I do. Right? Do we deal with this even today in our church? Not just in the capital C church, but even in the evangelical church, maybe even in our congregation. This idea of going, well, then this is no big deal. May it never be. It's no big deal if I sin, because God will forgive me for it later. It's not like I murdered somebody. The unfortunate drawback of saying, Jesus forgives everything you've already done. You can't earn it. It's not about what you do. It's about what you believe. Is that sometimes we go, oh, then what I do doesn't matter. Oh, okay. You're right. I wholeheartedly agree. So we never go against Scripture. No. Oh, he did, but he's trying to build a, a legal case more than anything else. He's like, look around you. See what you're actually doing. Because Martin, Martin Luther would have sat there and said, oh, I wholeheartedly agree with everything you're saying from Scripture. So, but in point of practice, is that what's happening? Or are you missing something by doing what you're doing? Sure. I was listening to Catholic radio. Good. I try to do that every once in a while. They have a special time to invite Protestants to call in uh-huh. and ask questions. And one of them was asking about Luther's justification by faith and uh, the sola scriptura and so forth, the solas. Uh-huh. And um, the response was that um, his justification by faith alone was anti-scriptural and a new introduction to the church that no one had ever believed before. Right. Scripture, 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 and then his main cardinal doctrine was according to Catholic theology. Catholic 
what he's referring to, though, this idea of justification by faith alone means you can do whatever you want. Oh, that's definitely, that's definitely what he's saying. In fact, we'll talk about this when we're in Galatians. That, that when Paul talks about freedom in Christ, he's not talking about the license to do whatever you want. And, and Erasmus is saying, in point of fact, that's what seems to be happening here. Um, now, whether Erasmus was saying you can't just be justified by faith or not is, is not necessarily what he's getting at. He's getting at here going, but this whole argument that you're, getting, that you're saying of justification by faith alone is teaching people that they can be as wanton as they would like to be and get away with it. Um, he writes to Melanchthon saying, there's this armed rebellion growing in Germany. He says, I, I know nothing of your church. At the very least, it contains people who, while I fear, overturn the whole system and drive the princes into using force to restrain good men and bad alike. The gospel, the word of God, faith, Christ, the Holy Spirit. These words are always on their lips, but look at their lives and they speak quite another language. They're not living what they claim to be living. And that doesn't honor Christ. So, Luther did return to Wittenberg, because after a year or so, pretty much all of Saxony goes, no, we actually like Luther better. And he argues that, you know, this is just helping the devil. When you don't live like people who actually want to honor Christ, Satan goes, great, you're doing my work for me. So you really need to, you really need to get your life right. 1524, Erasmus published a book called The Freedom of the Will, where he says, you know, I, I, I disagree with Luther. I contend that just because God knows something's going to happen, that foreknowledge doesn't logically demand predestination. Just because he knows it, it doesn't mean he created it to happen. Like an astronomer sees that an eclipse is coming, God knows what's coming. It doesn't mean that the astronomer brought about the eclipse. Right? So when we're saved, we're saved because in our free will, we choose to accept the grace that God has freely given us. There's a certain amount of logic to that. The next year, Luther published On the Bondage of the Will. In response... And he says, no, 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 It's illogical to conceive of an omnipotent God whose foreknowledge doesn't predestine. I knew what was coming up. I have all power and all knowledge. And I allowed this to happen and this not to happen. By definition, haven't I chose what will or will not happen? Therefore, humanity is completely sold to sin. We can't choose good over evil. We have no free will to choose. <coughs> That's when God saves us. He does so regardless of our will. He makes us completely remade when we become Christians so that for the first time we can actually choose to do good. Before that, we had no good in us. So which one's right? Is Luther saying both of those things? Which things? I mean, all of that. All that I've said here? Yeah. Erasmus says we have free will because God doesn't make stuff necessarily happen. He just knows that it's going to happen. Luther says, but if he knows that it can happen and he allows it to happen, by definition he's bringing that thing about. And so, we have no ability to choose God. He chooses us. Weren't we told that we were predestined before the beginning of time? So which one's right? Pardon? It's, it's to know every act we don't know. We have free will. I think that's clear. How much God's in control of it, I don't think we'll know on this side. What were you going to say? I think there's, there's shreds of truth in both of these. We're told we can choose other than what God wills for us. And we're, chose, we're told that God predestines us. Those, those are straight out scripture things. 
I struggle with Erasmus's argument that God, just because God knows something, it's not like he brings it about. He's more like somebody who, who can see multiple chess moves in advance. I'm like, no, it's like he's God. It's like he's omnipotent. It's not like he's just really good at gauging what might come next. So I, I'm uncomfortable with that. And yet, this argument that Luther had of, therefore we have, we have no free will whatsoever, then why are we told multiple times to choose Christ? So it, it's, there's, there's slivers of truth in both of these. And they're trying to figure this out. Well, that's what Calvin comes in trying to wade through this and figure this out. And then Arminius goes, yeah, except that that doesn't work. So, I mean, there's all these theologians trying to figure out what to do here. Erasmus says, this makes sense. And Luther goes, yeah, except for all the parts where that's totally boneheadedly stupidly wrong. And Calvin goes, no, 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 no. here, look, I've got this figured out. It's this. And then, and then Arminius goes, yeah, if you chuck these scriptures and make this tweaked, no, that doesn't work. And other people go, Erasmus, you're not even trying to build a systematic theology. And it's a difficult question. And so, without being snotty, I'll just go back to what to what Sarah just said. It's like, think about it. Chew on it. Look at scripture. But I'm pretty sure you're not going to figure out exactly how these go together this side of paradise. Work on it. See how close you get. A buddy of mine and I spent three years in seminary chewing on this. I remember running over to my house at like 10 o'clock on a rainy night going, I got it! I got it! I got it! And we talked for half an hour and he's like, I hate you. So... <laughs> Regarding Erasmus, Luther said, well, there can be no doubt in the mind of a true believer who has the spirit in his nostrils that Erasmus' mind is alienated from and utterly hates all religion together, and especially the religion of Christ. It's very clear. It's very clear. Luther's a snot. It's interesting that he did a lot of his arguing over multiple tankards of beer. He loved to sit in the beer hall and get falling down drunk and really foul in the stuff that he said. I'm not telling you all the stuff he said. He's a... Oh, oh! No, I'm going to say that's the Lutheran part of him. He's, he's an absolute jerk. But he's a jerk that God used. Just like Samson was a thug. And God was able to use Samson. Anyway. 1527, the Lutheran church becomes the church. Friedrich's brother, Johann, comes to the throne in Saxony and makes Luther, Lutheranism the state church of Saxony. Pardon me? You can make an argument that the concept of the state church, yeah, that, that's the thing that Germany did wrong. Um, but you can make an argument that any time that, that a country made a state church, that's a problem. Any time that you say, because you were born in the Roman Empire, you're a Christian. Because you were born in Saxony, you're a Lutheran. Because you're born in Sweden, you're part of the state church of Sweden. You go, then that whole making decision for Christ thing, that means nothing, right? There you go. Exactly. So Luther and Melanchthon have to figure out how to put all this together. How do I actually make this into a church? And Luther says, we're going to keep as much Catholicism as we can. We're just going to tweak the theology behind it. But we're going to keep all the trappings that we can. There's still going to be priests, but now they can marry, because Luther married. In fact, he married a former nun. It's like, nope, priests can marry now. 
right, they still consecrate the Eucharist. They still hold it high and say that when I do this, it becomes absolutely one with the real presence of God's flesh and blood. And you say, you're saying transubstantiation, it becomes the flesh and blood? They go, no! That's Satan! Okay. Transubstantiation, like the Lollards said. It's, it's still flesh and blood while it's still bread and wine? No! That's from Satan! What exactly? What exactly do you mean? It's a mystery! Don't try to explain it. Seriously. The more I try to examine the Lutheran doctrine of this, the wackier it gets. They're like, if you try to explain it, you are slapping human terms on something that's obviously mystical. It genuinely is the real presence of Jesus Christ's blood and flesh. And if you try to figure out that, what that means, you're from Satan. But it feels good. It feels right. And theology should be decided by feeling. By the way, everybody is now allowed to eat the bread and drink the cup. Remember, Catholicism at this time, only the priest gets to drink the cup because you're not worthy of to do that. Infants are still saved through baptism. Other people have to choose Jesus, but infants can be saved through baptism. But now they have to be required to be confirmed in that later. We have to confirm that Jesus actually saved them in baptism, because it doesn't always take, and we don't know why. When did the baby baptism start? Oh, that was... Um, what do we say? Like Tertullian? So like uh, about a thousand years ago? Okay. Um, mass is still performed, but now everything's in German. Okay? So we're doing all the stuff that Catholics do, but we're doing it our way. And it is interesting when you talk about like the, uh, the baby baptism thing. It is interesting because the theology is different. In Catholicism, it's you become a Christian with, with baptism. That's what saves you automatically. It has nothing to do with what's going on in your heart. In Lutheranism, no, it's all about what's going on in your heart. In baptism, God changes your heart. Maybe. But if a kid goes through, through catechism or confirmation and he's obviously doesn't know anything about Jesus, doesn't really care, then the baptism didn't take. And we don't know why. But that's what confirmation is. By the way, this is why we don't do confirmation in our church. After this. Uh-huh. Actually, an amazing number, of th- an amazing number of things that Luther said. Catholicism during the Counter Reformation went. Actually, that makes sense. So that's what you're saying. Luther yeah. started it. Arguably so. Okay. I doubt most Catholics would say that. Um, but they ultimately summarized all of this in another Diet of Augsburg in uh, 1530, in what became known as the Augsburg Confession. This is outlining all the stuff that we believe so that King, Emperor Carlos can get this figured out. This is why we say what we say. Now, I spent a lot of time talking about Luther, but I'm going to end by saying, at the time that Luther is doing all this in Germany, there are a lot of other reformers doing stuff around the world. There's Zwingli going on in, Sweden, in, in, in Switzerland. There's uh, Tyndale that's, that's publishing the New Testament in English in England. For that matter, there's Henry VIII going, I think we're breaking away from Rome. There's um, Jean Calvin in Geneva saying, I'm going to make some sense of this. There's Menno Simons that says, you know, the the Minsterites and the the Anabaptists actually make some sense. Let me put some feet to this. There's all these different people who all of a sudden, within the first 25 years or so of of the 16th century, start reading the Bible, because now they can, and saying, we've we've gone so far away from it, we have to start something new. That's where we'll pick up next week. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity to 
to look back and see where we've come from and where these things come out of. Help us, Lord, to see where we're standing right now and to understand to understand how this is just the fruition of everything that's come before. Pray, Lord, be glorified in our church, in our individual lives. Help us to figure out how to love you well, how to live lives that honor you, but to do it in ways that that aren't works-oriented, but make it a simple overflow of our hearts. Help us, Lord, to, to be evangelicals in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. But it is interesting, and we will talk about this when we get there, but it is interesting...